Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Anania Chakravarti, the author of The Empire of Apostles, Religion, Accommodatio, and the Imagination of Empire in Early Modern Brazil and India, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. This book received an honorable mention by the Association for Asian Studies Bernard Cohen Book Prize. Ananya Chakravarti is a professor of South Asian and Indian Ocean History at Georgetown University. By discussing this book, we will explore the first empirical study that considers the foundational moment of European engagement in both South Asia and Latin America. This book recovers the religious roots of Europe's first global order by tracing the evolution of a religious vision of empire through the lives of Jesuits working in the missions of early modern Brazil and India. Speaking from San Jose, welcome Anania to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you so much, Ahmed. I'm really, really pleased to be with you and to talk about this book. Um, uh, I'm really honored to be with you. Thank you. We'd like to start the interview by asking about uh, the author. So if you can start this off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you had any mentors. Okay. Um, so I um, I suppose this biographical fact is probably relevant, so I'll share it. Um, my father is a diplomat for the, uh, now retired for the Indian Foreign Service. So I grew up sort of splitting my childhood between Africa, Europe, and South Asia. And I think especially because my father was a very good Nehruvian, I would say, in both his foreign policy outlook and his understanding of um, nationalism. And so in that sense, I think I grew up in a in an environment that was very um, committed, shall we say, to sort of uh, solidarities uh, across the decolonized world, and was I, I, that kind of there was a deep interest in um, in both empire and the end of empire, if you will, in in the way that I grew up. Um, I came to the U.S. Um, I, I to actually study physics at Princeton, um, and ended up changing because one week after I landed 9-11 happened and I think for me the most formative experience which is true of many people of my age I guess was the Iraq war and my opposition to what I saw as an imperial engagement that began on false premises um and so I think that was a really formative um political event in my own life and and one that I think shapes a lot of the questions that I still continue to ask. Um, and certainly that, that shaped this book. So my interest in religion as a political force began in that moment, I think. Um, and so even though I ended up at the time, I ended up studying economics um, at Princeton. And I thought that I would sort of pursue a career in development economics but over time, one of my frustrations with the field is a field I still love and still have a sort of, um, um, you know, at, at least a, a sort of 
hobbyist interest that I keep up in the field. Um, my, but one of my frustrations with the field, especially for development economics, is that you know, inattention to history and um, and and the ways in which um, societies were shaped over time is is a real drawback in the field. And so when I decided to go on to graduate school, I I, I picked history um, almost uh, out of a hat. I think I was really looking for a different disciplinary. Um, um, uh, experience to try to think through the kinds of questions I was interested in, but history became a real passion and a calling in some ways. And I was very lucky at the university of Chicago and the mentors that I had, which is where I did my PhD. I was actually originally, um, admitted as a Latin Americanist because I had a minor in Latin American studies at Princeton. Um, and I added India really later after I went to Brazil and kind of was weirdly reminded of India <laughs> while I was there. Um, and, but I was really dual trained and, and, and I still think of myself first and foremost as someone who was trained in Latin American history. And so a lot of the ways that I frame things and think about things actually comes from that discipline first. Um, but I um I feel a huge intellectual debt to my two advisors in um Latin America and South Asia, Professor Dane Borges and Muzaffar Alam, um, who were my mentors there. And I think from the former I learned really how to think and read um as a historian, and from the latter I really learned how to think about sources. Um, so it, it's a powerful combination of, uh, intellectual mentors. Um, and so that's, uh, that's sort of the trajectory. Uh, and then, um, after my PhD, I spent a year at the European University Institute in Florence, and then really the formative sort of early career experience for me was my two years in Cairo at the American University in Cairo. Um, uh, where I was the Abdul Hadi H. Tahir professor in comparative religion and in the history department. And then I came to Georgetown where last year I received tenure. So I think that's everything. <laughs> Congrats. Um, definitely deserving. Um, so tell us about the book. Uh, how did the book idea develop? How did you come across uh, connecting these two, you know, seemingly desperate worlds together? And what was the research process like in the writing experience? Well, as I said, I began as a Latin Americanist. And actually, I, I thought initially that I would study modern Brazil. And specifically on um, developmentalist um, policies policies in in the in the country, but on my first um, archival trip there, I I was powerfully reminded of India, um, and 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 in sort of personal ways, but also in ways that sort of demanded an investigation of um, of the connectivities that could have led to such a um, sense of um deja vu if you will um which is when i decided to kind of go back in time um and to actually investigate a period when brazil and india had meaningful connections through the portuguese um and so that was really um where i i began in terms of uh 
the period. And, and the choice of Jesuits was really actually, and this is maybe useful for graduate students thinking about this, was really actually a lot to do with the kinds of constraints I had as an international student in the U.S. Um, as many of our international um, graduate students know, international students have a smaller range of fellowships, for example, that they can apply to for research abroad. Um, and so I had to find a topic that had archival depth that I could quite easily access um, for a dissertation. And, and the Jesuits wrote a lot. And there was a tremendous amount of correspondence, a lot of which, at least for the early years, had been published, which meant that if the worst case scenario, I didn't get the kind of funding I really wanted, I would still be able to write a dissertation. So there was a pragmatic um, element to the choice of Jesuits initially. But I was lucky enough that actually I, I, I won the SSRC. So I had the time to actually go to all of the places I wanted to go to, to do my archival research. Um, and in fact, uh, what began as a pragmatic choice really became the heart of what I became interested in, which was you know, what was it about this, the way in which Jesuits wrote and documented their experiences in Indian Brazil um, and, and how that actually structured the ways in which people in Europe started to imagine these places and their relationship to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure many graduate students are listening. So here's a cue about <laughs> what to do during a pandemic. Look for these sorts of archives that are accessible to you. Meanwhile, Absolutely. I guess. I tell my own graduate students this and my own advisors did this. I, I When I was planning my dissertation, I wrote sort of three versions of a dissertation proposal. One was sort of worst case scenario. Um, and a pandemic is very much apropos of that, um, of what would happen if I couldn't get to any of the archives I really wanted to get to. And, and then, the, you know, sort of the maximal version, which thankfully I was able to do because I did get the funding to go. Um, but it's a useful exercise. And, and you'd be surprised that if you really put some thought into it, you can be very economical in terms of how you can plan a dissertation with published sources and 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 really when you do get a chance to go to the archives i always encourage students to go to those archives that are not um sort of the obvious ones like a lot of national archives particularly in europe have enormous amounts of their materials already digitized or worst case scenario will digitize it for you and send it to you but the little archives is really where I find a lot of the real treasures lies. Like for me, the big revelation was actually the um, Archivo de Propaganda Fide, the uh, Congregazione de Propaganda Fide in Rome, which I hadn't really thought about. And I kind of went just sort of out of curiosity. And it turned out to be a really, really eye-opening collection for me. Mm, I definitely agree with you. And my favorite are the uncatalogued messy archives, because those where you find <laughs> treasure troves all the time. Um, so last uh, AHA, the American Historical Association conference, there was an early panel that I saw in the catalog, and I couldn't help but to attend it, which was your panel uh, that tried to bring South Asian and Latin American histories together. 
I would like uh, the listeners to also learn from that uh, panel as well. If you can share some of the takeaways from that conversation, why is it important to write connected and comparative histories of the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic worlds? So I, I love Damien Zaman who put the panel together. Um, she has to be one of the most creative and and sort of um, most literary r- writers I know in the profession. And Damien had spent some time in Mexico, and so she she'd written to me and um, because we'd met at a conference that Manan Ahmed, who was also on the panel, had had put together, uh, looking at. Um, the Indian ocean. Um, and, um, and so she was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in Mexico. I'm so inspired by this. It's really shaping how I'm really thinking about these histories. Let's, let's do something on this. Um, and, and so the panel, I think, I think it's fair to say that I'm, I, I was probably an outlier outlier in the sense that I am, I was the only person who is both trained in and does both Latin American and South Asian history on the panel. Um, but it was really exciting to see what Demia and Manan were doing in terms of their engagement as non-specialists with Latin American history um, and, and really thinking about the kinds of questions that it brought to mind for them. And, and, and Camilla Townsend was the chair for the panel. And so she, she was very, and as a, as a very, very well-known now what uh, specialist, I mean, she was, she was, um, she was she 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 sort of had really interesting questions for us so so the panel was i mean in many ways it was sort of the the panel i've always dreamed of so i love it there man for putting that together um but i think for me as someone who actually really does think of myself as being trained in south asia and in latin america and working from that place the thing that I always tell my graduate students, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a thing that also really reflects in my own research, is that I'm, I'm very skeptical of many sort of global history approaches, which have a tendency to be very sort of an eagle eye view. It can be very useful in terms of looking at large scale processes, but I'm skeptical of those approaches that are not grounded in historiographies and methodologies um, that are particular to particular regions. Um, so there's, I, I, I obviously really, really think that it's extremely useful to be grounded in two different historiographies of the non-European world especially if you're thinking about something like empire. Um, and, and I think that that's a really important conversation to have. However, especially for somebody who's considering doing it, you have to really think about the politics of knowledge involved in, in doing something like that. Um, so one of the things that I would not want South Asians to do, for example, is to kind of moonlight in, uh, in a field like Latin America. It's a really old, rich field of inquiry, and much of the best work in the field is not in English. It was written by Latin Americans in Spanish, in Portuguese, and continues to be written by Latin Americans in those languages. Um, and they're really fine historians of Latin America who never write in English. Um, and so if you're not comfortable sort of reading and learning, if you will, 
from scholars in those languages, then you can't really moonlight in a field like Latin America. Um, there are old, rich debates that require attention and care. I mean, similarly, too, for a Latin Americanist, if you want to engage with a place like South Asia, then I'm going to say that you have to at least learn one South Asian language. Otherwise, you're not really going to get purchase in the field or or be able to enter it in any meaningful sense. Um, so it's it's a commitment. I would say that it's something that if you want to do it seriously, then you have to really commit yourself to to training in two different fields. Um, but the rewards are enormous, I would say. I think that I automatically find myself sort of having a, and uh, there's always a voice in the back of my head when I'm listening to a paper in Latin America, in Latin American history or a paper in South Asian history. There's always another sort of entry point that might not be there for people who are just in one of those fields. So there's a there's a way in which you can constantly kind of check your own instincts as a historian simply because you have access to another field, which is really rewarding. And, and it shows really in this book, uh, you hardly can come across such a book which uh, engages indigenous study of South America and at the same time South Asian uh, peoples and histories. Uh, so it's definitely rewarding methodologically and historiograph- historiographically. So uh, you've mentioned the, the rich uh, archives that you draw on, the, the Jesuits' uh, records and correspondence. Um, so how did you approach these primary sources? Uh, how, what was your method in reading them, uh, and, uh, which shows in writing this book as well? And what was your theoretical uh, framework for uh, conceptualizing these writings into one coherent narrative? Well, um so <laughs> in some ways it's very old fashioned and pretty much what all of us early modernists do <laughs> is just first and foremost, you really learn to identify and think about genre, um, which, which as anybody who works in pre-modern histories know is, a, is, you know, sort of a first methodological step. The, way in which you frame what you write is really important and how we can then read it, right? And so with the Jesuits, what's really interesting is, of course, with such a self-conscious production, Ignatius left really detailed instructions on how to write letters, for example, Um, and specifically what was okay to write in letters that would be publicly circulated versus what was okay to write in private letters. Um, and so sort of um, a lot of my early sort of preparatory work was actually just reading all of this early um, um, documents. So, I mean, I read Ignatius's letters. I read Bolanco's um, letters, like the early companions, and, and really trying to sort of get into the mindset of, of what an early modern Jesuit sitting down to write a letter would have been. Um, uh, the other thing that I did that I think was really important is that I actually read a lot of theology because one of the things that you, when you're reading religious men is that you have to understand the ways in which they use and craft language. And so, especially someone like Xavier, you know, his, his letters would be peppered with, um, 
um, with biblical quotations. But it was important to not just think about the 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 quotation itself, but to really actually think about well, more what use is is this kind of quotation? Um, what work does it do in a text? Um, and so actually I spent a, a good amount of sort of prep work, if you will, just reading a lot of theology um, and, 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 and being able to parse these early letters. So, um, so I think um, those two things, especially like, you know, I mean, to be able to, for example, understand the debates on just war in, in, in the context of taking indigenous slaves in Brazil I mean, that required reading, you know, a fair amount of Aquinas and sort of reading theological debates about these kinds of things. So without that kind of um, reconstruction, if you will, of an intellectual world, it would have been very difficult to get into the sources that I was reading. And on the other side, of course, I also had to do this similar kind of work, um, particularly with my chapter on Stevens, um, because there... Um, obviously when, when Stevens is writing a Christian life of, um, a, a, a life of Christ in Marathi, he still, I think he didn't write it himself, that it was a co-created text with, um, Brahmin converts, but he was really partaking in a well-established literary idiom of Marathi. So I also had to kind of really get into like what Marathi bhakti literature was like. Um, in order to be able to understand a text that comes out of that milieu. So, and, and, and the, there's a different methodological problem on the Brazil side, because obviously we don't have indigenous texts as such. Um, and so there actually the enormous body of work by Brazilian anthropologists and ethno-historians, um, especially the late great John Monteiro, um, but also people like Eduardo Vives Castro, Carlos Fausto, like Alcide Ramos. There's a great range of ethnography and anthropology in Brazil that has thought very carefully um, about um, indigenous past. And so I was drawing on that literature to be able to do it. So, so let's, to put it, Another way, like long before I start reading a source, there's a ton of sort of reading around the source that has to happen for me to be able to unpack it. Mm -hmm. It's really important to think about not just the content, but also the form and the context, as you've mentioned, of these sources. Um, so in this book, uh, you write about these men as, as micro-histories, that is written uh, on a trans-regional scale, let's say a comparative one between these two worlds. So how did you uh, wave these micro-histories together and think about this vast geography? So I, when I was planning the dissertation, um, in some ways I, I planned it um, um, in, in a very kind of social side, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who thinks of history as a social science. Um, so obviously the narrative is important, but ultimately that, that, that's the kind of tradition I come from in, in thinking about the historical discipline. Um, and so I was really interested in, in really thinking about the kind of contrasts in, 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 um, social worlds of Brazil and India 
when the Europeans arrive. And yet somehow these two manifestly different societies sort of get subsumed into an imperial understanding by the Europeans. And that, that's really the dynamic I wanted to understand. So in Brazil, you have um, really a stateless society, you know, very horizontally organized um, and very mobile. And you also have a disease ecology that's radically different from the Europeans. And in India, you have the same disease ecology. You have a highly hierarchical and stratified society with big um, political formations. So much closer in some ways to what already exists in Europe. Um, and, and very different kinds of cultural technologies, you know. So this rich oral historical um, oral culture in among the indigenous peoples in Brazil. And India, of course, is a highly literate and, and you know, um, um, long-standing literary society, if you will. So these kinds of differences, when I was thinking about the project, were really important. And I kind of wanted to, because I wanted to kind of take a very long durée stance, because if I wanted to think about imperial evolution, then I really had to track something that changes over a century, really. Um, and so I've sort of picked pairs, if you will, in each of these places that would get me to, that would help me trace that arc. So Nobrega and Xavier, obviously, because they were the sort of pioneers, they were the first people um, to lead the missions in Brazil and India, that was an obvious pair. Um, because, of, of course, you know, as pioneers, they, they set a lot of the foundations of what came after. Um, and um, and the end point, of course, like Antonio Vieira, like anybody who works on the Portuguese world in the 17th century would say, well, if you want to understand imperial mindset, you have to look at Vieira. Um, the, but picking the pair with Vieira was more of a challenge. And I actually accidentally, it's one of those sorts of serendipities, is that I found a reference to Balthazar da Costa, of, of him meeting Balthazar da Costa in one of Vieira's letters. And that was when I realized that Costa had been part of Nobili's, you know, sort of continuation of Nobili's um, experiments in India. And so it, he, he seemed like a really intriguing figure to pair with Vieira. Um, and then the middle pairs, it was really because I was so interested in what cultural accommodation, the extremes of cultural accommodation, if you will. Um, because what was interesting to me is that cultural accommodation to indigenous peoples in Brazil was abandoned as a strategy, whereas it, it deepened in India. And, and that was really the contrast I wanted to grab at. And, and anybody who works on Brazil knows that sort of high watermark of cultural accommodation to indigenous peoples was Anchieta. Um, and so, so he was the obvious choice. And I, I picked Stevens because um, uh, Marathi was one of my, because I wanted to work on Goa, I knew that was going to be something that was a longstanding part of my career. I, I wanted to work on Marathi texts and, and Stevens was famous for precisely writing this life of Christ in Marathi. Um, so it's the first Christian um, text in that language. And I really wanted to work on that text. So that was how I picked my subjects, if you will. Um, and, and in terms of why, why this particular approach, as I said, I'm, 
skeptical of sort of this eagle eye view of looking at global history, even though what I am really interested in is, you know, sort of large scale processes, but I still wanted it to be very grounded. And Jacques Ravel's work on what he calls jeu de shell, like the game of scales, gave me a kind of theoretical lens in which to think about how you could do sort of these micro historical studies and then at the same time, you know, by scaling up or down, you can actually capture large scale global processes. And that was really the, the methodological approach I wanted to try with this book. Mm, that's very useful. Uh, I would like to turn to the book and its chapters now. The book is very rich and it consists of seven chapters with an introduction and an epilogue. In the introduction, you make, uh, I would say, a forceful intervention in the field. And you revisit the historiography of cultural encounters with Europeans in both uh, the New World, America, and India. So what is your take on the previous approaches and what are your interventions in this book? Obviously, cultural encounter is such an enormous field um, that I'm, I'm that when I, when I was um, sort of doing my uh, my comps, right? <laughs> as you as you mentioned, this is what you were also at the stage of your career. Um, when I was doing my reading, um, um, my my advisor uh, Dane Bohr has had had um, told me to actually use the mnemonic techniques that Jesuits like Matteo Ricci used of the memory palace. And so I, when I was trying to sort of set up my memory palace of all of my readings on cultural encounter, it was actually incredibly hard because it's such a huge and varied field. And so it took me a long time to kind of think about how to organize it. And I ended up, if you will, with three rooms in my memory palace of this kind of literature. Um, and the first was really coming out of this kind of... Um, Foucauldian slash Saidian way of looking at cultural encounter as uh, as a site that that really takes um, the gaze very seriously, right? And there and there's differences there, right? Obviously, with with the Saidian Foucauldian original premise, like it's it's the it's the imperial gaze looking at the um, colonized subject. But, you know, other other scholarship, particularly within Latin America, has also talked about the, the reversal of that great gaze. But the gaze as a kind of technology is really at the heart of how this cultural encounter is structured. The second room was the one which kind of really took seriously cultural incommensurability, that somehow people are end up being trapped inside their own cultural boxes and encounter is to some extent an illusion. Um, and, and, and that there is a chasm between cultures that, that become impossible at some point to cross. And then the last is sort of, um, uh, takes an agent centered view in which some people go betweens mediators have the ability to sort of, um, mediate different cultural worlds and that structures the encounter but what intrigued me about thinking about a very very enormous and very literature and sort of putting them if you will into these three rooms is that the actual way in which cultural mastery can occur was not something that people were really thinking about 
in terms of how over time does someone become familiar enough with the culture of with with another culture um and, and that was really the process that i was really intrigued by because these jesuits i mean you know um they knew when when someone like Stephen sets off from Europe, he knows he's probably never coming back. This is someone who spends forty years in in India, um, and and you know the, the uh, figures like him or Anchieta, they're they're sincere in their attempt to understand the people that they are there to minister to, and it's really hard to look at the cultural artifacts that they left and say oh they didn't understand their subjects they did they they understood it very very well in fact that's precisely why they could produce this but they were producing something for a particular purpose in this case it was evangelism and so it wasn't that they were there to understand the culture for no purpose other than to understand the culture they were there in some meaningful sense to change the culture and so that was really the approach that I took in thinking about how cultural encounter really structures empire and, and to think about writing a history of empire that begins with cultural encounter in these kinds of spaces, as opposed to sort of beginning in Europe as if Europe somehow went out in the world with this fully worked out blueprint of dominion. And and that's really what I was trying to do. I was really trying to understand how does Europe build what becomes a blueprint for um, global domination. That was a really useful introduction, to be honest, um, theoretically, because the question of encounters is of relevance to many people in many fields. Um, the first chapter, From Contact to Conquest, uh, made me think about... Uh, why is it important to decolonize our understanding of the church and the Portuguese empire by placing their relationship at the center? Why do you make this emphasis on this connection? Hmm. Well, as I said, um, for me, I think the, the Iraq war, um, which I do reference at the end of the book, was the thing that most obsessed me as, as a young person. Um, um, and, and, and for me, um, the last 20 years of global political life has been structured by the war on terror, which was really what, what came out of that. The Iraq war was in some ways the first, um, imperial engagement that came out of that. And the war on terror, the discourse of it, particularly under George W. Bush, was clearly religious. And there was this kind of, um, these religious underpinnings to the language that he was using, which I found so intriguing because, of course, the counter-narrative that, that the war on terror was supposed to, um, uh, was, was supposed to oppose was also founded in religion, right? Um, and so... So I was really intrigued by the ways in which religion becomes a useful technology for empire building. Um, and especially because, I, but it's also intriguing because religion, because, it, because of the kinds of commitments it requires from its adherents, 
is not simply a functional part of empire either. All right. I mean, so so religion is a kind of intriguing um, aspect of empire building, um, where on the one hand, yes, it can be very productive of imperial domination. But on the other hand, it can also produce its own discontents and its own critiques. And and so I thought it was a really important and interesting place to kind of look at how European empire um, or, or European imperial thinking um, evolved. Um, and 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 so that was really where um, that notion that we kind of had to take seriously empire and church together um, began for me. Um, and the um, uh, in terms of um, that first chapter, it, um, actually, that was the last thing I wrote, and it was actually written long after the <laughs> the book was done. Um, it came out of a very useful workshop with my colleagues at Georgetown. We we have this wonderful tradition um, that John McNeil started there of a book workshop. So we workshop our books um, in progress with uh, colleagues from in and around. Georgetown and the uh, neighboring universities and people basically said to me, you know, they're like, we need something to help us understand both Brazil and India. And it was a really hard chapter to write because it was, um, I wanted to write in a way that a specialist of South Asia wouldn't sort of glaze over in boredom reading that chapter, uh, the sections on India and a specialist of Brazil, the same, wouldn't just glaze over reading the, cha- the sections on, on Brazil. But while providing the information, both of them needed in order to understand the whole book. So that was a really hard chapter to write in some ways. But really, all I wanted to do was just set the scene in that chapter um, to explain what Brazil was like you know, at the point of contact, what South Asia was like at the point of contact, and also what exactly early Portuguese engagement in these places looked like. Um, so it's a scene settings chapter from that point of view. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important intervention, I think, especially that a lot of studies on different East India companies don't really take the question of religion into perspective and uh, grappling with the politics of these companies. Um so let's meet the Jesuits. Who are the Jesuits? What's their method of uh, accommodatio that you analyze in this book? And as you mentioned, Brazil and India were different encounters and cases. Uh, why is it so? Mm-hmm. So the Jesuits, I mean, they're a fascinating order. Um, and and I, I find it very um, sort of I find it quite wonderful that uh, my career has led me to actually be a professor at a Jesuit university. So Georgetown is a Jesuit sco- uh, uh, school. Um, and and uh, I, I, I take a lot of um, um, sort of, uh, uh, I take a lot of interest in, in the Jesuit aspect of the institution in which I work. Um, the Jesuits, I think, uh, are very typical of the kinds of um, development in um, in the 16th century in 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 some senses, right? I mean, so they're coming out of the same sort of currents of devotio moderna. Um, but what makes them really intriguing is, of course, you know, at this notion of 
um, contemplation and action. They really saw, um, unlike sort of earlier secluded orders, they really saw the work in the world as being vital to what their sort of contemplative life as um, as religious ascetics was. And so that I think I find really interesting. And I find that interesting in, in a lot of different religious contexts, right? Like sort of the, the the religious person who believes that work in the world is part of their religious mission. And, and that's really at the heart of Jesuit action. Um, and, and so um, the other aspect of it was that they were, they were enormously important and very successful in becoming the sort of right hand off the Catholic empires in their religious missions in this period. So they, they were in some ways, I mean, obviously the other orders were involved. I mean, the Franciscans became especially important later on. Um, um, and the orders minors were, were really Rome's arm in much of the world in the 17th century. So it's not that the other orders weren't important, but in some senses, the Jesuits were, were really preeminent in, in the role that they played in the early modern world as, uh, as, um, evangelizers for the Catholic church. Um, and so, um, so in many ways, looking at them is a good proxy for really understanding what's going on with the Catholic empires, um, in terms of their work as religious empires. Um, in terms of Brazil and India, as I said, what really intrigues me about the comparison is, is that these are very different societies when, when the Europeans show up, right? Um, and then, um, you know, you have radically different disease ecologies, which, of course, has really, really um, devastating consequences in Brazil. I mean, you have collapse of uh, around 90 percent of coastal indigenous populations um, due to contact. Um, and that, of course, has really important consequences over, you know, what does the shape of empire look like? I mean, you can argue that, you know, that it wasn't intentional genocide or it wasn't, but the effect is still the same. If, you, if you're talking about mass demographic collapse, that's a really startling social fact that makes um, empire building in a place like Brazil radically different from what it would look like in India, where you don't have demographic collapse. And of course, the other side of it is that, you know, in, in South Asia, um, much as in the rest of the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese are constantly in competition with other political formations. Um, and in Brazil, once they sort of uproot the French, um, they, you know, the Portuguese really are the only sort of state builders, if you will, in Brazil. Um, there's not really sort of, you, you have Quilombos later, you have the Dutch um, interventions later. But, but the Portuguese are able to set the terms of political life in a way that they can't in the Indian Ocean ever. Um, and so, again, that's a really crucial difference. And yet what's intriguing is that despite these massive differences and the kinds of environments the Portuguese find themselves in, over time, their understanding of Brazil and India becomes one of these kind of interchangeable colonies. And that's really crucial, I think, in the ways in which empire works, in which colonies get flattened from the metropolitan point of view. And that's really part of what I was trying to capture. 
so in, in this encounter with the, with the with the natives uh, in, in uh, especially in South Asia, what was the reaction of the locals? Uh, how how did the Portuguese feature in their thinking and writings? Uh, if you can give us an example. Well, I mean, in the earliest period, I mean that um, I suspect as um, that when the Portuguese first show up. Um, they're probably not that interesting. um, I mean, all of the early writings that you have um, from the earliest encounters, um, uh, they, what is interesting is how quickly the Portuguese become aggressors really by the second um, armada. Like, I mean, they're, they're actively seeking conflict which I think is a bit of a shock to these polities along the coast because what made these polities such such important trade hubs in the Indian Ocean was precisely that, you know, that it's not that there wasn't a highly politis, uh, highly militarized politics in the interior and there was tons of conflict um, and frontier conflict inside in, in the interior of South Asia. But port cities in the Indian Ocean were sort of remarkable in how open they were, precisely because they needed to be in order to facilitate trade. The Portuguese come in with a remarkable degree of aggression. I mean, just just this week, I was translating a couple of um, early letters by these two Germans that accompanied Francisco de Almeida and his Fifth Armada which was really where um, the, they, they, they'd sort of, in some meaningful sense, come with a kind of imperial design in place. Um, and, and what's remarkable when you read these letters is just how, how immediately they are there to instigate conflict. Um, so to that extent, I think a lot of these early indigenous, uh, these indigenous polities in the Indian Ocean are sort of taken aback at the kind of aggression of the Portuguese. Um, and specifically, of course, like as, you know, with the sources that I use in the first chapter, you start to see a sense, especially among Muslim observers, that these are, that these are, that, 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 that this is a growing threat. Um, but for the average indigenous person, um, I, I don't know if they, if they made like such a huge, Im- um, impression, um, immediately beyond sort of the, the conflict that they were generating up and down the, the coast of Africa and South Asia. Um, but, uh, over time, of course, that changes. Mm-hmm. And you show that in the three parts of the book, uh, the first part in search of the Indies. So I'll take chapter two, which is other Indies, and chapter three, the living books together. Uh, if you would briefly introduce uh, the actors, Francis Xavier uh, and Manuel uh, de Nobrega, mm-hmm. uh, and tell us about uh, what was their, the differences in their relationship. Uh, with the imperial authority in India and Brazil mm-hmm. and how uh, they face some of the challenges posed by indigenous cosmologies. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, it's interesting. And then Xavier sort of leaves Europe. He has this idea that the two, um, the, the reason why everything will go really well for evangelism in Europe, in, in India is one that somehow India doesn't have Jews and Muslims 
because the idea of um, and that, that that Gentile religion is somehow already amenable to conversion in a way that um, Jews and Muslims are not. Um, and you can see the kind of Iberian mindset there and the kind of, you know, idea of these kind of implacable others um, of, of Jews and Muslims, their absence somehow makes India, you know, easy, easy pickings. Um, and the other is, of course, the fact that he's convinced by the goodwill of the Portuguese um, authorities in the imperial um in 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 his imperial evangelical mission, and of course he's very quickly disabused of both notions. Like he realizes the Portuguese are not all that powerful in India, um, and the king's officials are usually there to enrich themselves and not necessarily to promote Catholicism. And the other thing that really surprises and infuriates him is that Gentile religion is not so easily thrown aside. Um, and and so in many ways, his time in India really reshapes what um, he came to, he came to, he, he thought about the Indies before he left Europe. Um, and, and it's actually, Xavier is really important because he actually is the first to kind of start to think about um, the cultures of Asia's and this kind of hierarchical civilizational ladder. And, and so he's always looking for a better, a more suitable subject for Christian conversion. So he goes from India to Southeast Asia. He finds the Southeast Asians to be even worse. He goes to Japan. He's generally quite impressed with the Japanese, but the Japanese don't have a stable political system. And so he ends his life in China thinking that's going to be the ideal place to win over to Christ. Um, and so he develops a kind of uh, relationship with Portuguese power where he sees the mission of the church as having to exceed its very minimal um, sort of flimsy tendrils and, and has to, and, and more than that, he starts to classify Asian peoples according to this civilizational ladder. Nobrega is very different, um, both temperamentally and in terms of, I think, a theological attitude. Because when he comes to Brazil, um, he's really an Augustinian in his understanding of, of human nature. And so he's absolutely convinced that everybody, including indigenous Brazilians, are capable of conversion. Um, and so, and in many ways, he actually sees the sort of accoutrements of civilization that Xavier lauded, right? Like literary, literary, um, a literary culture, um, uh, um, state authority, etc., as almost getting in the way. Um, and so, and, and that the indigenous Brazilians were perfectly amenable Christian subjects. Um, and so, and and more than that, especially because of the conflict over access to indigenous labor with colonists in Brazil. He cleaves a he, he cleaves quite closely to the Portuguese crown, so he develops a very different relationship both to Portuguese authority and to um, classifying native culture than Xavier does, um, and so that's really the sort of key differences between the two. But what is interesting is that both of them, I think, have a sort of um, intriguing. Uh, skepticism of the later humanist turn, 
in the in 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 the order in which um, they they don't necessarily laud sort of humanistic skull um, um, uh, skills like having uh, like being really good linguists and being able to grammatically describe these indigenous languages. They don't have that. They have this kind of very pragmatic sense of it's important to understand the people you live among. And, 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 and so this notion of the living books, as Xavier puts it, they both have this kind of skepticism of the kind of university trained missionary that, that I find quite interesting. And that that's of course quite different from the second generation of, Xavier and and uh, of Stevens and Anchieta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you follow that in part two of the book, Accommodatio and the Poetics of Location. In chapter four, uh, Jose uh, de Anchitia and the, po- the Poetics of Warfare. In chapter five, Christ in Brahmapuri, Thomas Stevens in, in Salset. In these two chapters, you, t- you take these two actors to think about the encounter with the Tupi people, but also with the Brahmins uh, in South Asia. Uh, how would you compare and contrast uh, these two different approaches and encounters uh, with these two different communities? Well, what's really intriguing about Anchieta is that, you know, so he, he's, he's, you know he's, he's very much a humanist. He's a very different from Nobrega in the sense, like he, he's... Um, and 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 he approaches indigenous culture with that kind of eye and lens. So he's he's interested in creating literary works in in indigenous languages. He writes grammars of these languages. And so he's using all these humanistic skills in pursuit of his evangelical mission. But what is interesting is that he considers indigenous culture, which is oral, to be worthy of accommodating to. And, 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 and so therefore the creation of this corpus of texts in indigenous languages, which of course is also the beginning of literary, literization of these languages is, is it's, it's a really remarkable project in that sense, especially because it's at odds with what is beginning to emerge as a consensus within the order, partly because of Xavier's successor, Alessandro um, Valignano, who sort of further elaborates this kind of hierarchical classifications of people. And then, and then later on, um, Jose Acosta, um, who is in Latin America and who basically puts indigenous Brazilians at the bottom of a civilizational rung and, and basically says that their culture is not worth accommodating to. That, that really becomes a consensus uh, after Anchieta. So Anchieta re- represents an, an, an anomaly of using these kind of in humanistic techniques to accommodate to a culture that would then later be deemed as not worthy of being accommodated to. Um, but his, his techniques and approach are very similar to Xavier, uh, to Stephen, sorry, um, in the sense that basically the interest is a literary, um, it's, it's a literary enterprise, right? That you take the, in the, poetic abilities of an indigenous culture, and then you reshape it to a Christian purpose. In the case of Anchieta, he's doing that really to kind of end the motor of what he sees as um, indigenous culture, and rightly so, which is, it it is ultimately a warrior culture, which is, um, it underpins its cosmology, it underpins its social organization, 
And so he's really trying to reshape what indigenous understandings of violence and bravery are by taking it away from sort of indigenous notions of the warrior as full person to the Christian martyr as, as the correct understanding of what, um, of, of what pious violence could look like. And then in, in the case of Stephens, he's using Marathi Bhakti as the vehicle for telling this life of Christ. But again, it's a very similar kind of process. He is, he's taking indigenous literary um, technologies and reshaping it for a Christian purpose. Um, and, and so, you know, probably the, the chapter I find most intriguing is the one where he, um, which is the, the wedding at Canaan, where, where, you know, the, the Jesus turns water into wine is his first miracle. But Stevens uses it to basically tell his Brahmin converts, hey, it's okay, you can, it, it's fine to drink wine in a ritual Christian context is not the same as low caste alcoholism. So he's really sort of very deeply attuned to caste um, and it's, it's um, and, and it's potential barriers to Christian life. Um, and he's really accommodating two Brahmins in that chapter. He's basically saying you can be, a, you can pretty much still in some ways be a Brahmin and be Christian. And that's really important as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the very word caste is Portuguese, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, part three, uh, religion, accommodatio, and the imagination of empire. Uh, chapter six, theaters of empire, Antonio Vieira and Baltazar da Costa in Brazil and India. And chapter seven, the empire of apostles. In uh, chapter six, you take uh, uh, another look at the Jesuit missions in Brazil and India by by tracing these actors. And then in chapter seven, you grapple with how the Portuguese basically uh, conceptualized uh, uh, a notion of empire. Mm-hmm. So if, if you can take these actors to think about uh, what are the Portuguese notions of empire, uh, what are the ways in which the imaginaire uh, of empire was articulated and disseminated, uh, how does it inform the attempt to institute a company to save the Estado da India and why its failure constituted a rupture, uh, as you see, in, in Portuguese imperial thinking? Mm. Um, I mean, the, 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 this is, this, this, th- there's a lot here. So let me see if I can try to kind of briefly get to all of it. Um, the, the Portuguese empire has received a lot less kind of, um, um, attention than say the, the, the Spanish or, or, or the, the Dutch or the French. And so there is less of a, um, I mean, obviously Portuguese historians themselves have, have thought quite deeply and well about the ways in which the Portuguese understood their imperial activities. Um, but I was really interested in the kind of practices that go into um, imperial thinking and specifically, like unlike, say, um, uh, uh, what 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 really came to kind of intrigue me was a kind of genre of of thinking that that circulated across these Portuguese um, spaces um, that that was really kind of structured like as a kind of historical prophecy, if you will, 
a history of the future. And I think it's a really interesting kind of genre, and I see it popping up in all these different places. And part of it comes out of Sebastianismo, um, and then the kind of traumatic loss of the Portuguese crown in 1580, and the idea that the that, that the crown would be um, restored. But historical prophecy shows up in all of these kind of interesting ways in the Portuguese um, world and in the sort of um, uh, of the 17th century. And I think that what I was really interested in was thinking about the ways in which um, this moment of crisis, of political crisis in the Portuguese world after they've lost the autonomy of, the, of their crown and as a result in some ways they're they're losing their their sovereignty or their ability to defend their colonies outside Iberia itself as well um and so this moment of political crisis gives birth to this kind of mode of thinking that I'm, I'm I think of as that Vieira himself calls the history of the future um in which you kind of um see uh new political opportunities for the Portuguese um, arising out of a kind of biblical history and a reading of biblical history in which the fulfillment of Portugal's destiny as empire is also the fulfillment of um, Christian um, destiny. And so so that's really what I see as a kind of sort of culmination of... of, um, of a Portuguese way of imagining empire. And of course it's, it is a deeply religious one. Um, now this is not to say that this was the only form of imperial thinking at work. And our, or in fact, one of the interesting things that I was um, thinking about is, is the limits of this on, on two ends. So for one, um, for some religious figures in Portugal, um, the 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 importance was not the importance of Portugal's religious destiny was actually located in, with within a sense of religious purity inside Portugal. So they were far more interested in say um, in say uh, ensuring the the sanctity of Portugal as a place without crypto Jews or or worse Muslims that in than they were in sort of defending Portugal's holdings abroad, the conquistas, as, the, as they were called. Um, and so, so that, that's one end of the sort of religious um, thinking that actually rejected empire in some m- meaningful sense, that they were far more interested in the, in the defense of Portugal as a Christian kingdom than they were in the, in the expansion of Portugal, Portugal as a Christian empire. Um, and on the other hand, you did have sort of, if you will, less um, religious views of empire in which, um, you know, empire was really a kind of commercial enterprise and which um, the, the, the colonies were sort of interchangeable and important insofar as they provided um, commercial value. Um, and so it was fine to abandon, you know, say, Pernambuco to the Dutch if they could just grow the things that they were growing in Pernambuco and another part of the empire. Now, this was unacceptable to um, religious, uh, to the kind of religious imaginary of empire that I'm tracing, because each of these places is re- religiously meaningful, right? And so you don't just seed ground 
because you can grow, say, ginger in another part of the empire. Um, and so therefore you don't need to hold on to that territory. You can't seed that ground because the people in that territory need to be Christianized. And so that's really the kind of um, range of imperial thinking that I'm, that I'm trying to trace in that final chapter. Mm-hmm. That's, very, that's really very useful to think about the entanglement of religion and empire in different parts of the world. Um, in the epilogue, you go to the President Bush speech and you've talked about that. So let me ask you this. Um, who would you like to read this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have? That's a, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I suppose I never really imagined anybody beyond um, academics interested in it, but actually I think I would really like people interested in the ways in which information and religious discourse um underpin imperial engagement. I would really I would really like people interested in those questions to to read this book. Because I think what what I was really interested in with 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 the Iraq war was how misinformation was really deeply productive of that war. I mean, it was productive of that war right in the beginning, obviously, in terms of the the whole WMD um, um, fiasco. But it remained productive of the war. In fact, whenever there was really good, hard-hitting information coming back from Iraq on how that war was going, Abu Ghraib being a prime example, there was serious erosion of support for the war. But as long as sort of, and, and, and in fact, like there was a really interesting study by the NB, uh, in the NBER that, that showed that um, that, you know, actually, uh, when, when this information flowed back and the, there was erosion of support in, in, in America, the war in Iraq was actually also going worse, right? So, so there's a way in which structural misinformation is important to imperial enterprise. That, that, that the fact that the metropole does not quote unquote, know what's happening in the colony is by design to some extent. And it is really important to why and how imperial engagements can continue. Because obviously empire is messy, it's violent, it's bloody, it's the human cost of it is horrible. And so I think if you are in the metropole and confronted daily with that reality, it's very hard to maintain support for an enterprise like this. Um, and the other thing that can continue to shore up um, support for uh, this kind of violence is the notion that this violence is in, is in service of some higher good. And so therefore religious discourse, even if it's not explicitly so, it's amazing to me how those echoes come, keep coming back whenever imperial engagements are being talked about. And, and in the American case, for example, I mean, the notion of, the, you know, the, the empire of liberty um, that, that, was, that, that Bush himself very much saw as what he was doing in Iraq, right? He was extending the empire of liberty. Um, and these, are, these are still 
discourses that are highly tinged by religion. Um, and so, so there's the, this is the other way in which I think religion, um, even though it can also then create its own discontents, right? Like <laughs> precisely because religion is an ethical discourse, it's a, it's a, it's a discourse in morality, it can create its own discontents of empire, but it can also then under underwrite empire in these really important ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I really appreciate the fact that you made the book uh, of relevance by including these current events in the beginning of the book and at the end of the book as well. Um, the book is very well organized uh, and written, and it's literally illustrated with primary documents and paintings with a glossary. Uh, so thank you for writing such a beautiful book. Um, before we move to our last question, uh, would you like to read a passage from the book to get a sense of the the, read, the, the book? Oh, um, sure. I, if you have a section that you particularly like, I can I can t- I can read from it. Um, and, uh, perhaps the uh, the last part. Um, you have a paragraph in which. The very end, do you mean? Mm-hmm. Of the epilogue, sure. Um, the work of history. The key puzzle that this book wrestles with is this, how European accommodation to the local, the experience of give and take in the non-European world, and the many attendant experiences of failure led to an enduring vision of cultural and political dominion. It is a refrain that continues to ring through the discordant trumpet call of Euro-American imperialist discourse, even today, after decades of failed wars and interventions. Amnesia and ignorance, particularly of the fraught, contingent, and violent nature of imperial power, are the smoldering embers that constantly threaten to engulf the world in new conflagrations of imperial violence. Yet this is part of the design of empire. The imperfect flow of information between the metropolis and its imperial outposts is not merely incidental, it is necessary to the maintenance of the triumphant self-definition of empire in the face of its vagaries. The, the conventions of Jesuit epistolary production mandated that the messy and unpleasant realities of the missions of the Indies be relegated to private correspondence while publicly circulated letters celebrated its successes. The result was a widespread circulation through the vehicle of Jesuit writing of an image of the Indies as a land of evangelical and imperial opportunity throughout the 16th century. When Portuguese temporal and spiritual dominion was in crisis in the following century, the intertwining of religion and history in the genre of historical prophecy allowed for a discursive reconstruction of a religious vision of empire that belied this crisis and mobilized resources in defense of empire. The imperial wars that beset our so-called secular age continue to depend on such self-aggrandizing and self-fulfilling prophetic visions of empire. Further, though the church under Pope Francis is confronting its own imperial past, the muscular resurgence of Euro-Christian cultural supremacists looms over the domestic landscape in both Europe and the U.S. I offer these contemporary moments as a coda to this book to make two points regarding the historian's task in addressing the entangled history of religion and empire. First, regardless of the deep roots of Catholicism in the non-European world and the church's own attempts to confront its colonial past, The historian, as a secular figure, remains crucial to the task of decolonizing our understanding of the church. 
This requires keeping in view both the ways in which the church has served as a handmaiden to empire and the ways in which the dictates of evangelism have run counter to the demands of imperial power. Second, in studying empire, we must not be seduced by its own narratives of invincibility and inevitability. Indeed, this is one of the most insidious modes through which empires survive. To reify these narratives, if only to critique them, may unwittingly serve to strengthen empire. The historicization and demystification of empire is crucial to the work of anti-imperialism. It is in that spirit that this book was written. Thank you for reading that. As much as I would like this conversation to keep going, we have taken a lot of your time. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing these insights uh, about your book. Um, I would like to ask you our final uh, traditional question. Uh, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current and future projects that you hope to work on? You've mentioned that you work on uh, histories of emotions as well as writing uh, uh, a coastal history of the of the Konkan uh, in South Asia. If you can tell us more about these projects. Gosh, I feel I feel like I'm being torn by a part in terms of how many different projects I have going. And some of it was actually born out of the pandemic. So I'm working on two book projects in collaboration with students. One came out of um, their efforts at uh, creating an archive of COVID. Um, so if you go to archivingcovid19.com, you can see the archives they built. And we're planning to do a book around that. And then the second project is um, I'm co-writing a, a textbook for modern South Asian history um, in collaboration with students as well right now. Um, and But then in terms of my own work, um, the my next big monograph is a history of the Konkan Coast, which is kind of west coast of um, of India, uh, stretching in in the way that I'm defining it um, for historical reasons, like um, between Goa and Kochi. Um, and and I'm really interested in this uh, as a way to kind of uh, think about how sort of um, we we have. Um, our, our sort of modern statist nationalist ways of understanding history and, and South Asia as a field is very, very statist in its conceptions of space. And we overlook cultural regions um, like the Konkan. And, and so the book is really trying to think through what makes a place sort of culturally coherent as a region. Um, and I'm looking at histories of labor and mobility um, as well as language and sort of cults, uh, religious cults that, that make this place very particular. And the book is unusual in the sense that, you know, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm an early modern historian, so half the book is sort of historical um, and archival, but then I also did uh, ethnography for this book and trying to think about the long durée ways in which these connections have been maintained over time across um, modern political lines. Sounds like fascinating projects. The first one, it's really important to have that engagement with the student. And the second one is going to be spectacular for the Indian Ocean field. And I'll be looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. And again, I'm so honored to be asked. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Ananya Chakravarti's 
uh, book, The Empire of Apost- Apostles, Religion, Accommodatio, and the, Imagination, uh, and the Imagination of Empire in Early Modern Brazil and India, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.